Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. As many of you may know, this past week, uh, and I know you've been praying for us and thinking about us, my wife and I had the opportunity to spend the week with her family within the Great Plains region of our country and into the Rocky Mountains area. And if you've ever been into the Great Plains area, you know just how vast and wide open it absolutely can be. And so uh, it was really neat to be able to see just just the northern part of Nebraska, the northwestern part up into South Dakota. And I didn't realize this until really we were kind of going out there. But uh, if you've heard of Sturgis before, if you're into the motorcycle world, Sturgis apparently is this huge motorcycle rally that they do every single year. And it happened to be uh, occurring during the week that we were there. Sturgis is a town located just north of Rapid City, which is where we were staying for a couple of nights. And so when we started getting out into the western part of Nebraska and then around Mount Rushmore, motorcycles everywhere. I mean, just far as the eyes could see, and uh, it was definitely a sight to behold. But as we made our way to the, uh, really to a town called Centennial, Wyoming, which is about 15 miles uh, outside of Laramie, which is where the University of Wyoming is located, that's where we spent a couple of nights, and it's just right on the base of the Snowy Range Mountains there, and uh, which is just a beautiful, beautiful area. We stayed at about 8,000 or so feet above sea level, and so it took a little bit of uh, time to get adjusted to that. Uh, but as you make your way up to the mountains, you'll see uh, just a bunch of different uh, signs of wildlife that you would not see here in North Carolina. And one of those things that we do as far as camping is we go sightseeing and try to find those particular signs of wildlife. And so this past week, I did not personally get to see it, but my brother and sister-in-law saw it and they took a picture of it. And so let's go ahead and show that picture at this time. And you probably can barely make it out. But if you look really closely there on your TV screen, you're going to see a little tiny black dot. That black dot, believe it or not, is a moose. Now, uh, those of you that have seen uh, moose in person, you probably have maybe walked up to it, maybe not that close to it because it's still a large animal, but the overall appearance of a moose kind of gives a, gives a peaceful, docile uh, nature to it. And so a lot of people take that for granted, and so they make their way up to the moose. Now, you can see here in this particular picture, it's, it's, it's actually not that close, which is why it's so small, because they saw it on the road as they were driving. But if you were to walk up to a moose, uh, most people wouldn't really be alarmed by it. It doesn't look like it could hurt you. It doesn't look like it's a mean creature. But believe it or not, moose are actually considered one of the top 10 most dangerous animals when it comes to wildlife. You say, well, what are you talking about, Pastor Brandon? First off, look at the size of a moose. A moose is the largest of the deer family. It can run up to 35 miles per hour. Now, the danger with a moose is that it does give across that peaceful appearance. But if you were to walk up towards a moose and it was to become startled by your presence, it would charge you. You're not going to outrun a 35-mile-per-hour moose. It will charge you. Usually, it doesn't end up in a fatality, but they could seriously hurt you. In fact, uh, they actually did a research on this, and they say that moose actually wound 5 to 10 people annually. And in terms of raw numbers, they say that moose attacks occur more than bear and wolf attacks combined. Now, perhaps, again, what makes a moose so dangerous is the fact that people do feel comfortable to walk up to it. 
For example, many people are smart enough to leave a bear and a wolf alone. I mean, you can look at a bear and you can look at a wolf and just instantly become afraid because of their appearance. You know that they in and of themselves have danger, which is probably adds to the account or explains the reasons why there's moose, more moose attacks than there are bear and wolves. Because people just walk up to moose because they seemingly seem peaceful. But it's in that seemingly docile and peaceful nature that people feel comfortable to approach it and they end up becoming deeply hurt. Take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to James chapter 3. James chapter 3, this morning we continue our journey on the third section of the book of James. And if you haven't uh, been with us for a few weeks, just a kind of a way of review. James was written by uh, the disciple James, which is not one of the twelve apostles, but he was the half-brother of Jesus Christ. James, growing up in a home, living with Jesus, did not become a follower of Jesus until after Jesus Christ appeared to James after Jesus' resurrection. And so really what you have is a letter that was written by a skeptic who turned a Christian. And so uh, this letter resonates with a lot of different people who have gone through that same journey. This particular letter was written to the Christians, specifically the Jewish Christians, as James chapter 1, verse 1 indicates, that had spread all throughout the particular region. Uh, James was the pillar, one of the pastors, one of the strong leaders of the first New Testament church officially established, and that was the Jerusalem church. As, as persecution continued to rise in a particular area, the Christians were forced out of the church of Jerusalem, and they planted other churches in Judea, Samaria, and the outermost parts of the earth. Well, James still had a heart for these people. He recognized and realized that the attacks of the false prophets would come strong to these people that had left the fold of the New Testament Jerusalem church. And so he writes this letter really for this purpose, and that is this. If you claim to be a Christian, then act like it. And what he does throughout this book is he gives us several different sections to explain to us what it looks like and what it means to be a genuine follower of Christ. And so he breaks his book up into several different sections. We see in James chapter 1, uh, really the qualities that are needed to overcome a trial. We understand that as Christians, we all fall into trials. Some of you are going through trials now. How do you respond to that as a Christian? Do you get mad at God or do you trust in God? And so James spends time in James chapter 1, beginning in verse 2, all the way down to uh, verse 20, and just talks about how to respond to trials. And then he moves into the second section, and he deals with how faith and works correlate. Works do not equate salvation, works prove our genuine faith in Christ. For example, if we uh, repent in our, and give our life to Christ, then we are going to naturally produce fruit that are Christian-like in nature, that are Christ-like in nature. It is a natural consequence of our trusting in Christ. But last week, or two weeks ago, we, we began a, a second, or really the third section, and that is dealing with wisdom within the Christian life. And a couple of weeks ago, we talked about really the wisdom when it comes to our speech, and just how dangerous our tongue is when it comes to our communication with other people. In verses, uh, really verses 1 through 12, he deals with the ramifications of the tongue and the power of the tongue. Our tongue is a powerful, powerful body part, for lack of better terms, that James describes that can actually have the power to destroy towns and cities like a great fire. Our tongue can literally change the course of the rest of our life based upon what we choose to say and what we choose not to say. And so what James does is he continues this thought of our speech. And he transitions now in verses 13 through 18, which will be our focus here this morning. And he focuses on the wisdom and really the difference between heavenly wisdom and earthly 
wisdom. And so in verses 13 through 18, what James does is he compares the difference between these two types of wisdom in order to equip the Christians to understand the difference between the two so that they can be better equipped to live in the power and the control of the Holy Spirit. And so look down with me in James chapter 3. We're going to read verses 13 down to verse 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy, good fruits, without partiality, and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. As I mentioned just a few moments ago at the beginning part of the service here, a moose will often hurt people because people are fooled by the docile appearance and nature of the moose. And so they feel safe to approach it until oftentimes it's too late and they're hurt. As we continue in our study on this subject of wisdom, specifically as it pertains to our speech, what James wants the readers to understand in verses 13 through 18 is this difference between wisdom and er, uh, earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom. Because our tongues can give the portrayal of heavenly wisdom when in reality they are empowered by earthly wisdom. And letting our guard down with others is where we can get deeply hurt. And so the title of our message this morning is The Difference Between Heavenly Wisdom and Earthly Wisdom. What James does is he, he begins here is he starts off with this penetrating question. Now, within this context, the question is really geared towards those that aspire to be biblical teachers. If you remember, as we discussed a couple of weeks ago, look at verse 1 of chapter 3. James says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. He's talking about those that desire to be biblical teachers. He, he, wants, to, he wants them to understand, listen, if you desire that, great but just understand, because you're communicating the truths of God's word, the holiness and the righteous character of God, you will be held to a higher and stricter standard. And so within the overall context, it's really kind of his point. He's, he's delivering it to those that aspire to be, able, to be biblical teachers. Now, for those of you that are listening that have no calling and no aspiration to do that, don't tune the rest of this out because the principles of this apply to every Christian. In verse 13, it really serves as an introduction to James's next topic, and that is wisdom. See, James just finished his discussion on how faith and works correlate. Now he's going to discuss how godly wisdom and our lifestyle coordinate or correlate. James begins in verse 13 by asking him this question. Who is wise and understanding among you? This rhetorical question is strategically positioned to cause people to question whether or not their overall conduct portrays heavenly wisdom. For example, I can imagine James looking at a group of Christians and writing this, many of whom aspire to be great biblical teachers and who uh, seem to possess great spiritual uh, wisdom, looking at them after delivering all of these strong truths and seeing that they may in their own selves think, hey, you know what, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good in following this Christian life. I haven't done this, I haven't done this, I haven't done this. And so what James does really, and I can imagine this when he's asking this question, is he's it's causing them to stop and think and really poses this question. He says, who thinks they are wise and understanding? In other words, who thinks 
that they really have their tongue under control. And after giving that question, I can imagine some of the believers sincerely taking that and saying, listen, I think I'm good. I think I'm a good follower of Christ. They become convinced that they're on the right track. And so what James does is he follows up that rhetorical question with this statement. He says, if you think that you are wise and you think that you are understanding as far as keeping the biblical principles that are laid out for us in Scripture, then let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. With that rhetorical question, James is asking the people how they can effectively demonstrate God's wisdom as reflected through obeying God's principles. In his answer, James explains those who are wise, in other words, those who are faithfully following God's commands, should demonstrate their wisdom through a humble and obedient lifestyle. If you really claim to be wise, then demonstrate that through your lifestyle, through a humble and obedient lifestyle. What James lays out in verse 13 is really what he's going to explain in more detail in verses 14 through 18. In essence, in verse 13, James says, As faith is demonstrated by works, so also is wisdom demonstrated by good conduct and gentleness. So as we enter verses 14 through 18, what James does is he contrasts earthly wisdom between heavenly wisdom, so that those that think that they are operating off of heavenly wisdom would really understand where the fruit or really where the seed of their wisdom is coming from. And so the first thing that we're going to look at here this morning is the profile of earthly wisdom. The profile of earthly wisdom. James begins in verse 14. It says, But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. James begins in verse 14 with the first way in which a person is to examine of what type of wisdom they truly possess. James in essence says this, if you claim to have godly wisdom, but yet you are controlled by an envious and selfish heart, then you are lying to yourself. It is completely possible to operate in the name of Jesus, but do it out of a bitter and self-seeking heart. Read Philippians chapter 2, I believe, in which the Apostle Paul is writing, recognizing the fact that there are pastors and preachers out there that were happy that he was in jail so that they could have more glory for themselves. The Apostle Paul says, listen, I understand that there are pastors out there, there are preachers out there that are doing the name of the Lord and they're preaching good things. He says that in Philippians, but they're doing it out of a bad heart. The Apostle Paul says, listen, I hate that. But praise the Lord that the gospel is still being preached. And so the Apostle Paul recognizes the fact that people can do things in the name of Jesus all day long, but their heart is not in the right place. The, the phrase selfish ambition shows a person that is trying to promote a cause in an unethical manner. That word envy in this context describes a person's desire to promote his own opinion over the opinion of others. And so in taking the name of Jesus... And allowing that to be the banner in which we hide our selfish heart behind, we can cause many problems in our own Christian life and in the life of the church. This is the root of earthly wisdom. It is selfish gain. No matter how spiritual it looks, it is the heart that is bitter and envious and is in the job of promoting their own self. James says that if you operate out of a selfish and envious heart, then this type of wisdom certainly does not originate from heaven, but from hell. Look at the strong words he says in verse 15. He says, This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, it is sensual, and it is demonic. Any wisdom that is not of God is earthly wisdom. Therefore, it is inferior to God. 
Whenever we operate in something that is inferior to perfection, we are bound to fail. Whenever we trust in our own wisdom, our own thinking becomes clouded by sin, and so therefore it, is, it becomes significantly harder to distinguish the truth. And you perhaps have counseled people. Perhaps you've been there yourself, where you believe you're following the will of God, but really you're operating out of a selfish heart. And so therefore the decisions that you make are really not the decisions that God is calling you or leading you to make. You're operating those decisions out of a heart in which your heart selfishly wants to make. And so when we are thinking about earthly wisdom and operating in earthly wisdom, it's an inferior to the wisdom of God. And so therefore confusion takes place, which is what James says in verse 16. He says, For where envy and selfish seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. So when you're operating based upon your own selfish heart, your own selfish ambitions, all it does is cause confusion. This way is extremely, extremely detrimental to the health of the church. In fact, one commentator says this, false wisdom promotes self-assertion and independence. It destroys a spirit of mutual concern and where Christians do their own thing instead of caring for one another, a community of support and mercy can disintegrate. This is what James has been talking about through this entire chapter. Earthly wisdom divides, heavenly wisdom unifies. It's earthly wisdom to treat the rich and the privileged and the church body better than the poor and the oppressed. This is what James says in chapter 2. It is earthly wisdom to simply hear God's word without doing God's word. This is what James discusses in chapter 1. It is earthly wisdom to believe that God is the one that causes us to suffer rather than the byproducts of a depraved world, which is what James discusses at the beginning of chapter 1. When a church replaces heavenly wisdom with earthly wisdom, problems are bound to arise, and that is why is it extremely important for a church to be based upon solely the Word of God. Now, let me talk about something that is another controversial subject. And many of you know that, that, that have been attending our church. I don't shy away from controversial subjects, not because I like controversy, but because I want us to all think about uh, how we can view this life through the lens of God's Word. So let me bring this to a relevant subject here in our life today. This past week, the town of Chapel Hill, which is where our church is located, passed another mandate requiring that all indoor gatherings have a mask. Everybody wearing a mask, or, or that everybody gathering within an indoor service or indoor gathering of any kind have a mask, whether you've been vaccinated or not vaccinated. And being a church that is located on Chapel Hill, we now have a decision to make. Do we abide by that? Or do we go our separate way? And this is a hard decision to make because the script, well, I should put it this way. This can be a hard decision to make because nowhere in Scripture does it talk about whether or not you should wear a mask and, and, and nowhere in Scripture does it talk about it. It would be nice if it was pretty clear cut, but it's not. And so as a church located in Chapel Hill, with our local government mandating that we wear masks within gatherings, any kind of indoor gatherings, we can either say, all right, I'll obey the government, I'll listen to them, or we can lean more towards the side of, I'm going to continue to trust in God, we're going to do our own thing, because really I don't agree with that mandate anyway, we could say it's unconstitutional, whatever, fill in the blank, and just forego it. But if we allow earthly wisdom to help us make decisions on things, that is where we can end up having problems. Say, well, Pastor Brennan, how do we make a decision about this? We have to look at God's Word. That is where we gain heavenly wisdom. 
And so last time I checked, as I mentioned, mask mandates are not mentioned in the Bible. So where do we go regarding this particular answer? And so if you want to hold your finger here in James and flip over to 1 Peter chapter 2, this is one of our least liked verses, probably, in the book of 1 Peter. Now, again, within context, Peter is writing to a group of people that are underneath the rule of Nero. Nero was far worse than anyone that we could ever imagine as far as leadership goes. They were not set up as a democracy. They had to do whatever Nero told them to do, and there was no choice in the matter. And so Peter writes to them, and this is what he has to say. These are God's words, not mine. This is what Peter says. Therefore, submit yourselves. This is verses 13 down to verse uh, 17 in chapter 2. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king supreme or to governors or to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. Okay, so we read this passage here, and we put that within context of what the government is asking us to do. Let's just say, for example, uh, the mask mandate is unconstitutional. And let's just say that, for example, uh, that, that, that is, is leaning on the lines of being unconstitutional. Do we abide by what the local government in whom God has told us to do, to rule over us? Do we abide by what they have to say, even though it goes against the Constitution? And I know there's some wiggle room there. We as the United States of America can go around different routes to really uh, protest against certain things that are not within the Constitution. Or do we listen to what they have to say? Now, reading 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm an American. Us as Americans don't necessarily like these verses because we have within us a certain set of freedoms. And I praise God for that, and my prayer is that they never be taken away. But if the local government is asking us to wear masks within the service, and I don't like wearing masks, I personally don't like them at all, whether you've been vaccinated or not, according to the scriptures here, we would have to err on the side of obedience to the government. Because nowhere in Scripture is wearing a mask right or wrong. When the government asks us to wear a mask within indoor gatherings, we have to say, well, is that breaking the Word of God? Is that going against what God's commanded us to do? No, it's not. And so, therefore, according to Scripture, if we are to bring about heavenly wisdom and not earthly wisdom, we have to err on the side of obedience to the government, according to the Scripture. Now, if the government was to say you can no longer have gatherings because of whatever they decide to, to add on there, that would be a violation of Scripture. In Hebrews, it talks about, let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Now, I understand we're not gathered together here, but it's a one-time thing. But if it was a consistent rule in which you could not gather together, which is unconstitutional, but that's another subject, we would err on the side of not listening to them on that mandate because that goes against God's word. You following with me here? So if you have heavenly wisdom and you want to bring things and make decisions according to God and his word, we have to set aside selfish ambitions and selfish desires. And my own selfishness, I don't want to wear a mask. I don't want the government telling me to wear a mask. I don't want to wear a mask. And my own selfishness, I don't want to do that. So if I was to make a decision based upon that, then according to what James is saying here, that would be considered operating in earthly wisdom. Our natural desire, our natural spirit doesn't want to operate in heavenly wisdom. We want to do what we want to do, which is why it makes it so hard, which is why James spends several verses discussing it. And so when it comes to earthly wisdom here, 
we have to determine, okay, is decisions that I'm about to make, how I'm living, how I'm talking, how, how I'm communicating, how I'm living my life, is it based upon this selfish uh, ambition of usurping myself above all things, usurping myself above God? If that is the answer, then we're operating on earthly wisdom. That's the profile of earthly wisdom. And again, we can do it in the banner of, of following the Lord all day long, but if our heart is doing it for the selfish gain in order to promote ourselves, even in the name of Christ, then we're still not operating in heavenly wisdom. We're operating in earthly wisdom. So let's look at the profile of heavenly wisdom. James says in verse 17, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. Within verse 17, James gives a list of virtues that describe heavenly wisdom. And again, our natural uh, will does not want to abide by any of this. James says that heavenly wisdom is first pure. In other words, heavenly wisdom is not tainted by man's selfish ambition. It's not tainted by man's selfish desire. It is pure because it is based upon the very character of God. That's what makes it pure. Not our intent behind it. It's based upon the character of God. James says that it is peaceable and it is gentle. The natural outpouring of a godly conduct will result in harmony and peace even when both parties do not agree. Pastor Bryce and I don't agree about everything, and that's okay. We still love each other, and we still go forward for the sake of the gospel because in our humble pursuit of heavenly wisdom, we want to do God's will above our own. You're not going to have agreement in everything. That's okay. But it's how you respond to that disagreement that will define whether or not you're operating on heavenly wisdom or earthly wisdom. Again, when you take self out of the picture, there will be no disunity because each person will not care in getting their particular point or viewpoint across. This is why James adds, it is willing to yield. It is willing to yield. To yield your thoughts and your opinions of the matter for the sake of unity within the body is a tremendous display of heavenly wisdom. In addition, James says that heavenly wisdom is full of mercy and good fruits, and there is no hypocrisy about it. Again, this all goes back to the fact that heavenly wisdom is not based upon self, but upon the cause of Christ. What makes a church a godly church is a unification of the church based upon the will of God rather than a will of man. This is heavenly wisdom, and this is the fruits of it. So what James does in this section, he's, he concludes in verse 18 with one final thought. He says, now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The result, or this really is the result of operating through heavenly wisdom. It is a harvest of righteousness. But this righteousness is only produced by those who are willing to make peace. Our churches need to be filled with those that are willing to allow grace to rule in decisions that are not clear in Scripture. We are all on this journey together. And the last thing we need as a church is to operate in earthly wisdom because that only causes strife and division within the body of Christ. So as we close out here this morning, how can we be encouraged by all of this? As I mentioned at the very beginning with the illustration of the moose, we as a church can appear to be docile and peaceful in nature. By the mere fact that we're a church, we are oftentimes granted the assumption by many to be a loving and caring institution. But my prayer is that, like the moose, as people get closer to us, they would not 
they would not move forward in the presupposition that we're a peaceful group only to find out that we're nothing more than just a group of people that hate each other and operate on earthly wisdom. Because that's when people get hurt. My prayer is that people would move forward with the assumption that a church is a peaceful, loving, and caring place and would actually see that to be the truth because our church is filled with a group of people that are operating on heavenly wisdom. Heavenly wisdom that goes against our natural tendency to do what we want to do. Heavenly wisdom that helps us to decipher the sticky areas, which was what 2020 and 2021 all seemed to be, is a bunch of sticky areas. How do we make a decision about this as Americans and as a Christian? Our pursuit must be heavenly wisdom. What does God's word say? What is God's will for our life? Because it's in that pursuit of heavenly wisdom that we have a harvest of righteousness. And my prayer is that our church would be a harvest of righteousness because that is how we honor and glorify God. And that is how we communicate the gospel effectively to our community.